This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Justin Martin discusses his new book, Rebel Souls, Walt Whitman and America's First Bohemians. Then Mark Rotella, our very own, uh, tells us all about his trip to Sicily, where he uh, got involved in a fascinating publishing initiative. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen BookScan. All right, you go first this time because you got it. Uh, you've, you've been out the last couple yes. of weeks, and I've had to yeah. hold down the fort here, so uh, I'm going to relax for a bit. So uh, at number one, we've got a couple of new uh, titles, new, new, new uh, debuts on the list. We have um, Act Like a Success, Think Like a Success. Discovering Your Gift and the Way to Life's Riches by Steve Harvey. Uh, he's, uh, his previous book was a New York Times bestseller book, also number one, Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man, in which he told women what it takes to succeed in love, and now he tells everyone how to succeed in life, giving you the keys to your uh, fulfillment. We, we know him as a TV host and um, kind of a comedian, uh, and uh, this is his book. I guess apparently he... Uh, uh, had gifts he did not recognize, such as uh, with people, with way with words, and he helps people discover things that they, you know, attributes that they have, and they helps them tap into it. So, and that's it. Number one, uh, the first week out, it sold about twenty six thousand copies. All and right. uh, yeah, so number two on the list is thirteen hours. The Inside Account of What Really Happened in Benghazi by um, uh, Mitchell Zukoff, who is the best-selling author, author excuse me, of several books, including most recently Lost in Shangri-La and Frozen in Time. Uh, and this is the you know, a, a, a true account of uh, those who fought back during the Battle of Benghazi. Uh, and that was... Um, so uh, September 11, 2012, so mm-hmm. just a couple of years ago. And this is at number two on our list. And um, what's kind of interesting is at number six comes uh, the 2015 uh, 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 issue of uh, Guinness World Records. Hmm. And you, it's, you kind of think we've, we've, and we talked about this before, how reference books are, are kind of on the wane, or it seems that rough reference books aren't publishing as well because people are finding references online and, and using that. But this, uh, as they say, we haven't reviewed it, um, is a fresh new design and feel inspired by innovations in tablet technology. And the latest Guinness Book uh, Records, this is from their uh, press release, presents thousands of new and updated records, along with hundreds of amazing, uh, never-seen-before photographs. So, uh, obviously, whatever they've done is uh, still, you know, drawing interest. So, so it's not bad. It's got a brand, you know. The, yeah. the, the Guinness brand survives. It's like... Um, if if I want to look something up at Consumer Reports, 
you know, I would have to pay for that. And there are plenty right. of other places where I could get a free review. But because Consumer Reports has that particular brand, right. um, it can be worth paying for known solid expertise. So exactly. um, Guinness has a reputation for, you know, really being very thorough and uh, caring a lot about the integrity of their records. And I think that makes it more interesting. Yeah, sure. to, yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And people, maybe people want to actually have this to hold, to refer sure. to their house, to the, on the coffee table. Great bathroom uh, reading. Bathroom reading. <laughs> I was just going to say the same. <laughs> right. it's, it's an important demographic. Thing, yeah, you know? right. Exactly. Important segment of the market. <laughs> so number 12, wake, uh, waking up as a guide to spirituality without religion. This is by Sam Harris. He's the author of The End of Faith and Free Will. He's a neuroscientist, and he draws from personal contemplative practices and, and a growing body of, uh, I guess, scientific research to argue that, as we say, the self, the feeling that there is an I residing in one's head is both an illusion and the primi- primary cause of human suffering. Uh, this is number 12. Um, uh, we say in simple but rigorous style, he takes the middle way between the pseudo-scientific and pseudo-spiritual assertions, cogently maintaining that while such contemplative insights provide no evidence for metaphysical claims, they are available. And uh, um, we say leads to profoundly more a salubrious life. So if someone wanted to work that word into the uh, review. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like an editor. <laughs> so, finally, uh, number 13 in a starred review, World Order by Henry Kissinger, uh, mm. former Secretary of State, um, uh, also the winner of the 1970, 1973 Nobel Prize. Uh, and this is basically his, uh, his accounts grounded in some 50 years of experience. Uh, we say it deserves a wide, uh, attentive audience Um that will include anyone who's interested in uh, global affairs and foreign affairs. So, Does that include people who think Kissinger is a war criminal and a, uh, the very a first, person? The very first line, <laughs> the man some call war, the war criminal. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, exactly. So, 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 talk, yes, so exactly. useful for people from any perspective. Right, exactly, yeah. Good to know. All right. Well, on fiction, uh, we have a new number two uh, by J.D. Robb. This is Festive in Death. It is the 39th book in the Eve Dallas investigation series. Um, She has just been uh, churning them out. And um, the series shows no sign of stopping. So this one is uh, very holiday themed, Mm -hmm. which is uh, appropriate for... We start to see the holiday books coming out this time of year. I'm actually a little surprised this one's September and not maybe more Mm -hmm. October, November. Um, But uh, certainly it'll make a great stocking stuffer. So it's uh, at number two. And number five is The Witch with No Name by Kim Harrison. This wraps up uh, her long-running Rachel Morgan series. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been going on for, for quite some time. Um, and it brings Rachel and her allies together for one final world-saving adventure. These are uh, very solid urban fantasy books. And mm-hmm. it'll be very interesting to see where Harrison goes next. Uh, and our review says that the magical escapades are plentiful and profound. And they lead to a satisfying ending for almost everyone involved, plus a Rowling-esque peek into the future, mm. which offers some last-minute surprises. Sure. So it's uh, it's always a little bittersweet when a, a long-running series like this wraps up, um, but I, I think her fans will be very, very pleased with it, and obviously they're pleased enough with the idea of it to put it at number five on our bestseller list with about 9,500 copies sold. Wow, great. 
Um, and I just wanted to uh, highlight another couple of books a little further down the list. The Children Act and Number 7 mm-hmm. by Ian McEwan. Uh, we gave this a starred review. Uh, the 1989 Children Act made a child's wear- welfare the top priority of English courts, uh, but that is, of course, easier said than done, given the complexities of modern life. Um, and so that is what's investigated in this uh, uh, McEwen's 13th wow. novel, which is uh, featuring a family court judge, Fiona May. Mm. So uh, we gave this a, a really lengthy review, uh, a good, uh, interesting digging into the, the book a little bit. Um, and at the end, we say that uh, McEwen, in spare prose, examines cases, people, and situations to reveal anger, sorrow, shame, impulse, and yearning. And he re- re- rejects religious dogma that lacks compassion, but he also scrutinizes secular morality. Wow. So this sounds like it's uh, a pretty intense read and uh, worth picking up. And finally, again, a little bit further down uh, at number 13, we have The Monogram Murders, the new Hercule Poirot mystery. Ah. Uh, there's there's a name that uh, many people will have that reaction to, yes, as you just yes. did. Uh, it would be wonderful to, to have Agatha Christie back for some more Poirots. And uh, we don't have her, but we have Sophie Hanna, the author mm. of The Monogram Murders. And um, in our starred review, we say that Hanna does a superb job of channeling Agatha Christie in this wholly successful author authorized pastiche so the christie estate authorized it um and uh apparently hannah really lives up to that uh and we say that lovers of of classic whodunits can only hope that hannah continues to offer her take on the great belgian detective so uh, that's uh that's one for the mystery fans out there I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Justin Martin tells us about some of the fascinating characters who hung out with Walt Whitman. We'll be right back. Hello, my name's Gabriel Weston, author of Dirty Work, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Justin Martin here in our offices. His new book is Rebel Souls, Walt Whitman, and America's First Bohemians. Hey, Justin, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. I'm really glad you could join us. So tell us a little bit about this book. Well, this is the first book ever written about a group of scruffy artists that hung out in a saloon in New York City called Fafs at the intersection of Broadway and Bleecker Street, and they're rightly considered America's first bohemians. Among their number was Walt Whitman and a bunch of other colorful figures. And so who is this Henry Clapp Jr., and what was this group of bohemians, is this underground group? Well, Henry Clapp Jr. is the person who rightfully should get credit for importing the concept, the term and the concept of bohemianism from France to America. He was a pretty well-known temperance lecturer who went over to Paris in the 1840s. Perfect timing because Bohemia was in full flower on the the left bank. And um, he he was a teetotaler. He fell off the wagon into Bohemia, fell in love with Parisian-style Bohemia, decided to return to the United States and bring the concept with him, introduce it. Um, And so he found this saloon, Fafs, which I mentioned earlier, and um, convened this group of bohemians um, there, and um, um, the rest is history. (laughs) So tell us about this, uh, uh, set set the time for us, and and tell us a little bit about this uh, bohemian culture in Paris at this time, and what part of it was it that he transported to New York, and why, maybe? 
1849 was when um, already Paris was kind of in a tumultuous state, a little bit like America during the 60s with the Vietnam War and so forth. Mm. And La Vie de Bohème, which famously um, done much later as an opera by Puccini, was was just released as a play in 1849. And, and the left bank was just thrumming. It was going wild, basically. And some of the elements of Parisian-style Bohemia included just a ferocious nonconformity, um, a passion for art, another thing that many Parisian Bohemians wouldn't, of that era wouldn't have wanted to own, but certainly one of the attributes of it was a passion for art, but more talk of art in cafes and actual doing of art, sexual openness, um, substance abuse was certainly one of the elements, and then mm-hmm. um, early death, often from tragic circumstances, and in sort of the, the cliche of the Parisian Bohemian is due to tuberculosis from right. being in a drafty garret. Well, Clapp fell in love with parts of that. <laughs> he, fell <in> love, <laughs> he, fell in, he fell in love with the unconformity, the passion for art and so forth, and brought that back to America. Now, it's worth, it's worth mentioning that Bohemians have always existed for the whole history of the world, everywhere. But what he did was he brought this term, this useful term, and this kind of codification. The, the Parisian um, Bohemians had, had sort of a description, a code for what it was they were doing. So when he introduced this in this saloon called Fafs, now these people had something they could call themselves, Bohemians. And they, they, they adopted that mantle. They took that on in a kind of self-conscious emulation of the Parisian style. And so that's what sort of um, Henry Clapp's innovation. So if one were to walk into Pfaff's saloon, well, I assume that I would not be permitted to walk into Pfaff's saloon. Uh, but, you know, is, was, was, it a, was it a gender segregated space? Because a lot of one, pubs one, at the time were. Good, good question. And yes, you'd be welcome. Unlike at McSorley's, a New mm-hmm. York watering hole from about the same era many people are familiar with. McSorley's dates from 1854. Slogan was good food, good ale, no women. Fafs, you'd have had a very different experience. I mean, the saloon itself was very welcoming to all kinds of people, including women in a very gender-segregated society. It's one of the things which caused Henry Clapp, this lapsed temperance lecturer who returned from Paris, to want to have Fafs as his um, as his venue for this experiment in bohemianism. But the other thing is, Clapp himself, one of the topics he had lectured on was women's suffrage in the 1840s. I mean, we're talking decades before the 19th Amendment. Um, And so he was very, he wanted to have women as part of his artistic circle. He invited a number of notable ones in. So not only were women welcome at Fafs, they were also welcome in Henry Clapp's artistic circle that he convened. So was it otherwise just your your standard saloon, sawdust on the floor, spittoons? It it was, well, it was, it was a... (laughs) It was a standard saloon only so far as, yes, in, ter- in terms of its appointments, very modest. As you said, sawdust on the floor, mm-hmm. flickering dim gaslights. It was a very unusual space. There was a little vaulted room that um, Henry Clapp was given as kind of his dedicated space for these bohemians, for him to convene them. He was actually furnished with a long table. Um, the proprietor gave him this, a long table that could see as many as 30 people. So in this little separate room, that's where he convened his his collection of Bohemians. Now, the larger room at Fafs, the best way to describe it is it was just a place um, for different people that were kind of societal outliers of various stripes to, to meet and greet. And among those were many gay people. This was a place, this was before the term, hmm. this was before the term gay had any kind of currency. It, it, well, it meant 
lighthearted. <laughs> and sure. It was long before the term homosexual, a generation before that term was used. This was just, you know, people that were people that were gay. And um, many of them were, of course, you know, didn't fit necessarily into mainstream American society. They might find their way to FAFs. They might find their way to that larger room and find, you know, like-minded people. And, and then you have sort of King Arthur and his long table in, in the back. Exactly. The way I sort of thought of it is you've got one room, which is just a, the big room, the main room is this wild. Um, you know, sort of freeform room. Then you've got the small vaulted room. And Clapp was, uh, along with being a lecturer, he was also a magazine, uh, rather a journal editor. And he was an editor by both temperament and trade. And so I think of this other room mm-hmm. as being ferociously edited. The, there were 30 <laughs> spots along this table, a little bit like Studio 54. People wanted to sit down at that table. You sat down at that table and you had to match wits with, with Clapp, first of all. He'd, he'd take on any newcomer who showed up and, you know, sort of throw out various witticisms. You couldn't match wits with him and the other bohemians who'd sort of gang up on you. You'd quickly beat a, beat a hasty retreat out of that little vaulted room. But if you could ma- pass muster with Clapp and the fellow bohemians, you might get a regular spot at that long table. Almost sounds a little bit like Dorothy Parker's Algonquin table, uh, nearly, a, well, a half a century later. <laughs> it, well, it, more than that, but yeah. It is. It is. It's interesting because by the time the Algonquin Roundtable was at its height in the 1920s and through the 1930s, FAF's saloon, the scene was long, long forgotten. Mm-hmm. So it's doubtful that any of those members, like, say, Dorothy Parker, had heard of any of these figures other than Walt Whitman. Mm. However, you could say that sort of that the animating spirit, that spirit of, of sort of New York City urbaneness, mm. elevating art above all, um, being witty, that same animating spirit that, that um, you know, made an appearance, an early appearance at FAF's return for the round table. So you've told us a little bit about uh, Henry Clapp and how, who, who were these bohemians how did they come to find this place, and or was Henry searching them out? It was a combination. It was. It really. It kind of worked well from the standpoint. The location was perfect. Fast was at the intersection of Broadway and Bleecker Street, mm. and this was an era when this was the 1850s. New Yorkers and Americans. The, the entertainments available were were different and limited. It wasn't. You know, certainly, there was no television, radio, internet. But one thing people did a lot of, particularly urbanites, Manhattanites, was wander around, and Broadway was just a great street for, for ambling. I mean, there were interesting shops and curiosity places to go into, freak shows to attend. Wow. And so you could make your way up and down the street and find something that suited you. And so FAFs was certainly a place that, that um, you know, someone, someone of a, a certain turn might see it and enter it and think, wow, this is the place for me. So that, so he found people, you might call it organically in that fashion. But as I also, as I mentioned earlier, he was a journalist I and mean, he had this journal. So he, he was very connected in journalistic circles. So he also invited people who he thought might fit well into the FAF scene from his circle of journalistic acquaintances. He'd invite them to, to come out. So how did Walt Whitman find this, this crowd? Because as you said, that's the name that has sort of carried down through the years after many of these other people have been forgotten. There's no specific account of, of how exactly Whitman um, found it. What I would guess is Whitman was maybe the ultimate Broadway rambler. I mean, nobody knew the two-mile stretch of Broadway from, say, City Hall to Union Square better than Whitman. He spent hours wandering along, going into a phrenology shop where people would you know, we'd learn about having bumps red on your head. He'd go attend 
lectures on astronomy, he'd hear operas, he'd go to plays. So it's only natural <laughs> that he would have noticed Fafs as he was ambling. As I said, I doubt Henry Clapp, there's no specific um, detail I came across that told exactly how he first arrived there. I don't think Henry Clapp invited him. I suspect just among his many hours of Broadway rambling, he saw this saloon, decided to drop in, and thought, this is the place for me. <laughs> so what's in the place now? Or where uh, where Fafs was? Well, Fafs is at 647 Broadway, and what's there now is is a women's discount shoe store, and it really it it, it bears very little. You know, there's there's nothing really marking this amazing spot. I should mention Fafs was a subterranean saloon, so it's below the street level, and you entered by opening a hatchway in the Broadway uh, sidewalk, oh. going down a na- long, <laughs> steep, narrow ladder into a pretty ample subterranean space. Wow. Well, what's there now is you got the shoe store, and then the shoe store's basement uh, is is piled high, which that's where you know the spot where all these Bohemians met. The actual vaulted room. It extended out underneath the Broadway sidewalk, and because of 21st century construction standards, all that foot traffic and weight on the pavement above, the actual vaulted room has been kind of concreted in. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's gone, the exact place where Whitman and Clapp and that long table sat. But the rest of the, the sort of the saloon's larger room still exists. It's had, you know, 150 years worth of tenants and modifications, so it doesn't have any any clues to what it is it's just a kind of a a, a um it's a basement it's a right. basement storage right. space for right. pumps and stiletto heels right. <laughs> so tell us about some of the other characters who showed up um you know, Fitzhugh Ludlow actress Ada Clare uh, Charlie Brown sure we've got let's see Fitzhugh Ludlow was the author of one of the best-selling books of 1857 the hashish eater which detailed his experiences <laughs> oh with, wow that's great <laughs> with the, with the drug during a while well, he was an undergraduate at Union College in Schenectady New York mm. um you had Ada Isaacs Minkin who was a actress who who gained fame for her role in a play called Mazeppa where she um she had a sort of a um a, a moment where it was impossible in the dimly lit theaters of the day to tell whether she was undressed or not so that's that's a hit oh. that's a hit in any in any era so that was mm-hmm. Ada Isaacs Minkin you ask about Charlie Brown that was the that was a given name it's kind of funny that was the the birth name of a man who later changed his name to Artemis Ward um had a really revolutionary act so revolutionary that newspapers of the day didn't know what to call it. They called it a comedic lecture. What he really is was America's first stand-up comic. Abraham Lincoln was a huge fan. In fact, before introducing the Emancipation Proclamation to his gathered cabinet, he read some snatches of Artemis Ward's comedy routine. So those are some, <laughs> those are some of the people that gathered along that long table along with Whitman and Clapp sitting at the head of it. And where was Artemis Ward giving these, these comedic lectures? He would give them sort of the same place. This was an era when um, lecturing on moral betterment mm-hmm. and uh, lecturing on astronomy or any number of topics was very popular. So the same lecture halls were available. And the, and the great thing was people in the 19th century immediately got what he was doing. Um, they, they saw that this was a, you know, that he was, he was doing a comic lecture and then they, and they loved it. So it, it was almost a parody of those other, other lectures. That was actually his, that was what he actually did was, was he decided um, that he was going to do, um, he's going to kind of do a send up of all the pompous moralizing people had to spend a lot of time in those days. They would go attend lectures um, a lot of people, when they went to church, they had to attend long sermons that they mm-hmm. sometimes found pretty ponderous. And so this guy, Artemis Ward, he was uh, he was in his 
20s. He had he was very gangly with straight blonde hair. What he did was he dyed his hair into this frizzy black mane, and he wore these really dark funereal suits like a man you know 30 or 40 years older than him would. And then he would deliver these... What started out sounding like it was going to be a really pompous lecture, and he kind of lose his train of thought and lose his way and say silly things. The audience would laugh, but he'd never he'd never break character. He'd be very serious. And then the punchline would be he'd deliver a kind of folksy homespun truth, a bit of common sense <laughs> wow. that completely undercut the the ridiculous moral. Um, uplift that he promised at the outset and 19 it was very coded i mean 19th century people immediately got it they knew who he was sending up they knew what he was doing and it made him a a huge star now talking about another uh uh arena of arts uh, opera is it right that mazeppa was an opera or was it a play Mazeppa was actually Mazeppa has had so many different forms, but ultimately um, the it was the vehicle for Ada Isaacs Minkin um, to to start it with a play. It also has been an opera, a tone poem by Liszt, um, a bunch of different things. Mm. But the version she was the version where she did the the sort of striptease where they weren't sure whether she was clothed or not was was a play. Ah, right. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Justin Martin, author of Rebel Souls, Walt Whitman, and America's First Bohemians, and he is telling us some fascinating stuff. So what kind of research did you do to uncover all of these sort of long-forgotten aspects of Whitman's life and and Clapp's circle? Well, sort of the, the, the great thing was I did a ton of research going to various archives, um, um, held at various universities, um, f- um, you know, going to the library and searching out, you know, old publications, tracking down old letters, and so forth. The great thing is there was a lot of information on these folks. It, ma- it made my job a lot easier. I mean, someone like Artemis Ward or Isaac's, Ada Isaacs Mink, and they faded into obscurity, but they were they were um, you know important, substantial figures in their day. So it made researching their um, time a lot easier than it might have been because there was this stuff to be found lots of newspaper accounts from from the day um archives for certain figures like say fitzhugh ludlow who um the, the author of the hashish eater he was a student at union college and union college has a fine archive i'm not sure anybody had, de- had delved into it recently but they had plenty of detail about fitzhugh as a as an undergraduate at union college so. wow hmm. all this and then well uh, how did the the, the the idea of this book come to you i mean did you stumble across it or uh what happened was I was sitting chatting with a university professor that I know, and he said, have you ever heard of Faf Saloon? I said, no. And um, he, t- he started telling me about it. I'm, I'm used to constantly people are telling me book ideas. I'm also constantly coming up with my own book ideas. Almost all these things fall through. When he told me, have you ever heard of Faf Saloon? I said, no. And he started describing it. It sounded really interesting. Then when I started doing some research into it, I was like, "This is <laughs> this is it," and basically I I dove, you know, that 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 casual question from that university professor set me off on this 
um, on this journey. Did you dedicate the book to him? I certainly thanked him <laughs> fulsomely, I hope, in the, <laughs> in the acknowledgments. <laughs> um, so you've also written uh, some biographies of Alan Greenspan, Ralph Nader. Th- this seems like a real departure for you. Were you looking for a change of pace, or did this just grab you and not let go? This grabbed me, which is always one of one of my main criterions for, for selecting a, a book subject. But also, each what, what kind of connects all the books I've worked on is, is I like variety. Like Alan, Alan Greenspan was a professional jazz musician. People may not know before becoming Fed chairman. I didn't know that. A member of Ayn Rand's inner circle helped her with the research on the on on her first big book, Atlas Shrugged. Um, mm. So you know, I, I like people that are. I like subjects that are varied, and this was just like the ultimate variety pack. You get a poet in Whitman, and you get um, you know a, um, a, 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 a psychedelic pioneer in Ludlow, and, and you get to learn something about France when you follow Clap over there. So it's it's the kind of thing I like with lots and lots of variety. How long uh, did you spend researching and, and writing this book? I was given the usual short lease by my publisher of two years, which is which is a fast turnaround. And you know, throughout the whole process, I was um, you know staying up till all hours and mm-hmm. cursing them under my breath. But then, of course, when, when, I, when I was done with the book, I was like, "Well, I'm glad they held me at such a yeah. short leash because if they'd given me five years or seven years, I would, I would have just filled up that time." Sure. So, yeah. yeah, it sounds like there was so much to do. Reading through a lot of primary sources. And- it was, it was, exa- I mean, it was just, I, it was basically, it was all I did. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, Your family must have loved that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. My, my wife always says that I'm sort of a serial monogamous with these various, uh, <laughs> cheating on her with Walt Whitman or Alan Greenspan or Ralph Nader, whoever it might be at the time. <laughs> how, how do you balance, you know, a, a two-year book contract, which is a very intense sort of thing, and people think of novelists turning out a couple of books a year, but for some deeply researched nonfiction like this, that's a lot of work. How do you balance that? That with you know wife and kids it was just it's it's the classic thing just do do my best i mean try i mean among other things there's, there's only you know so many hours that you can devote to really productive work so I, I try to be really productive you know during the hours my kids are away at school so that i can you know spend some quality time with them when they're home and then once they go to bed get back to you know work but there's um you know i, I kind of feel like if you um if you try to work too many hours, in my experience, at least, sometimes um, you become less productive. So that's it. That makes sense. Now, you live in Forest Hills, uh, Forest Hills Gardens in Queens, New York, and um, which is a landmark neighborhood designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. Um, and you've also written a book on Frederick Law Olmsted. What came first, living there or... Uh- <laughs> <laughs> or, was, or did, you, you or did could, he inspire you to move there? You could, you could call living there kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, I, I'd, I'd been really interested for years in in, um, in Central Park, like so many New Yorkers, and you know, had had ca- you know sort of casually over the years gotten to know more and more about. It. I had a friend who became a Central Park guide, which is a really mm. a really amazing thing to to uh, you know. It's a very competitive position, and so she would test out her tours on me, and so that that began to get me interested in in. Um, you know, in, in Frederick Law instead. But then when I moved to this neighborhood, it just kind of, I was like, okay, my, my, my next subject is kind of staring me in the face. Right, I mean, that, that's real primary source research is the, there, there you are. Uh, absolutely. So yeah, that, that, that gave me a real um, sort of passion for, for the subject. And was that a, a straight biography or what was the, uh, the conceit for the book? That was a straight, you know, a classic cradle grave biography, and Olmsted was another. Oh boy, he is a, you know, um, talk about variety. You're talking about a man who was a sailor, scientific farmer, um, a 
abolitionist, a journalist for the startup New York Times who, who traveled across the American South and documented um, slavery. That was all before he became, uh, you know, probably the preeminent designer of parks in, in America. Wow. So, so he, was, he was a true Renaissance man and, and um, involved in so many different things in, in 19th century life that still have resonance today. Sure. Mm-hmm. When you when you say a scientific farmer, have you done your own farming experiments in Queens? <laughs> well, I've I've got about um, maybe a sixteenth of an acre of prime Queens farmland, and um, <laughs> not a phrase one hears very much these days. <laughs> and I and I, I work it pretty hard. I've 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 had a bad season, unfortunately. My corn didn't come up. My radishes didn't take it. So I, I have to. I think I have to let let it lay fallow next season or something. So mm-hmm. I I love I love gardening, but I'm I'm not I'm not very good at unlike um, Olmstead. <laughs> and for our listeners who don't live in Queens or have not visited, even a sixteenth of an acre of land is uh, quite a bit of plot uh, for a, for a uh, borough that is pretty much paved over that has very little green it is and i was delighted it was one of the draws of my house that i have a, a tiny postage stamp sized backyard so sure. that was <laughs> have you ever been to the queen's farm museum i've been there many many times great because <laughs> I, I, i've never been but i love that it exists it's actually it's, it's a lot of fun you know queen's queen's was sort of the last of the manhattan uh, the last of the boroughs to develop um and it was a really it was a great agricultural spot until probably the 1920s so it still has that um agriculture tradition and the Queen's Farm is a great place to visit. One of the things I loved when I moved from Manhattan to Brooklyn is finding out that my next door neighbor kept chickens. I loved it right until one of them got into my yard and I had to learn how to catch chicken and and return it to my neighbor. And that was a, I I had not expected Brooklyn to be quite so agrarian. (laughs) For sure. That's, that's funny. (laughs) So what's next for you? What's, what's the next idea that's grabbed you and not let go? Um, unfortunately, nothing is, is grabbing, hasn't let go. I'm, I'm, I'm back to um, I'm that process of trying to come up with an idea. I have a long, long list of half-baked ideas. <laughs> so hopefully I'll, hopefully I'll come up with something great um, at some point here. Wait, what's your choosing process like when you have that list? Do you just sort of go through it and cross one off every day? or I go through and I'll, I'll, gi- I'll give you an example. I thought the other day, I thought, I thought wouldn't it be amazing if this actually, if it's actually documentable, and if there's a, a a discreet story about Hernan Cortez arriving in Mexico and the Aztecs, um, you know, I thought that would be amazing. So I did a little research. Didn't take long. Hernan Cortez wrote six kind of rosy letters to the back to his sponsors in Spain. They're really whitewashing, and that's all there is in history. So that that's that book. That's out. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> so that's my process. I it's mostly a process of negation. It's just quickly something sounds good, something sounds promising, and you quickly determine there isn't enough documentation or something is um, desperately wrong. It's a myth <laughs> rather than whatever it might be, and and so mo- it's mostly just dismiss this, dismiss that until something actually sticks. <laughs> And how do you get to the point in your career where a publisher will say, I'm going to pay you to sit around for two years, read fascinating stuff and write about it? Well, I've, I've had the good fortune in this, you know, in, in a time in which publishing is in such tumult. I have worked for Perseus, um, which is the, um, the parent company of DeCapo, my imprint, for all four of my books. Mm. Um, I've had the same editor for my last three books. No um, kidding. Merloyd um, Lawrence, who's a wonderful editor. I've had the same publicist, um, Lissa Warren, for all four of my books. I know so, Lissa well. She's wonderful. She is wonderful. So I, it's it's been, for me, at a time of real, you know, sort of tumult when people hop from publisher to publisher and publishers, you know, get bought up and so forth, I've had the good fortune to, to you know, work with the same 
team and further the good, you know, the good fortune that, that, you know, I have a track record with them. They know um, that, you know, that, that if I become passionate about a topic that, and if they, if they give me that tight two years that I'll actually, you know, that I'll come back with something. So it's, it's been a very, very happy working relationship. Well, it sounds wonderful. We've been talking with Justin Martin. You can find his book, Rebel Souls, in stores right now. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. I enjoyed it. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. And next up, our very own Mark Rotella will tell us what he did on his summer vacation to Sicily. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Rudy Rasmus, the author of Love, Period, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, our very own Mark Rotella is here. Welcome back, Mark. We what? missed you last week. Oh, thank you so much, Rose. So uh, tell us tell us uh, where you've been. Well, um, Publishers Weekly sent me to Sicily. Boy, it's yeah. a rough life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was tough. Uh, it was um, <laughs> you know a uh, you know flight out there, and then you landed, and then you were you know plied with with food, which was mostly all fresh, mm-hmm. mostly from the sea, and um, uh, we, we were given tours throughout the countryside to which I'll talk about a little later on to go to various sites of famous Sicilian authors' birthplaces or where they returned to write. And uh, the best part about it is that I was traveling with a, um, a, a delegation of a small delegation of uh, American publishers uh, to meet with about a dozen uh, Sicilian publishers. And the American publishers were all from uh, uh, usually smaller, one larger press that handles, they all hand, all the editors have an interest in handle uh, books of translation. So, um, they were there to, uh, this is part of a bigger, uh, uh, a bigger journey. The, uh, it's called, uh, voices from the South. And this is put together by the Italian trade agency mm-hmm. in Chicago and in, and in Rome to help bring Sicilian or Southern, uh, writers to American audiences. And um, got a couple of little facts and figures here that I think I'll talk about. But uh, this started about, I think uh, it was a 2010 BEA. I, I can't remember exactly when uh, the Italian Trade Organiza- uh, Agency developed this task force to help rectify issues that they saw as an unbalanced uh, uh, um uh, exchange of books. So, for, so for instance, give us yeah. a little background information on this whole north-south divide mm, okay. in Italy. Northern Italy and southern Italy is divided in half, usually uh, south of Rome, north of Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, Meridionale is the south of Rome, and that's uh, uh, basically Campania, which is where Naples is. There's Apulia, and then which is the heel of the boot. There's the Abruzzo Molise, which is kind of like the calf. And then you have Basilicata, which is basically the the ankle bone and you have calabria which is the toe mm-hmm. of the boot and then you have sicily that island off the toe that is about the the uh, westernmost tip of uh sicily is only 70 miles off the coast of africa so it's actually 
a lot closer than when we, I grew up in Florida, whenever we go down to Key West saying you're only 90 miles away from Cuba. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so this is pretty, pretty close. So, but it's uh, traditionally been the poor part of Italy where um, there's not as much uh, industry. There's n- up until recently, there's not been as much tourism. And so consequently, the, the region has suffered. Uh, it's, it's one of the poor the poorest part of Italy, uh, and, and has been, uh, and this is basically when Garibaldi in the 1860s, uh, meant to unite Italy before that Italy didn't exist as a country. It was just a, uh, right. a series of, uh, of, of states, uh, controlled by the Bourbons. And, uh, so he united Italy and brought together these, these areas. So, but anyway, so traditionally the South has been, uh, uh, poor. And so this part of the Italian trade commission has wanted to bring a little more wealth to these 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 areas so so it's kind of interesting um just in italy as a whole uh uh italian publishers acquired this is 2013 figures 2500 uh titles mm-hmm. um and meanwhile uh american publishers from from the u.s american publishers uh, uh acquired 168 so it's about a 15 15 time difference so yeah uh so so it's it's quite a big divide and what was interesting about this meeting was how the dialogue started so you would meet with these publishers who uh, first of all the uh the americans would uh they, 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 there was a um, it was a conference it was a, a lecture and so the americans would it was uh, hosted by um I can't remember. She was the she's an editor at the Corriere della Sera, which is the evening courier, which is you know, Italy's biggest biggest newspaper. Um, and we with with various American with American publishers is kind of rotating in and out to talk about their house, what they do, what they're interested in, and then afterwards, Italian publishers uh, were were able to meet with and kind of pitch uh, uh, titles they thought might have. Um, interest uh, to American audiences. So are these titles that have already been translated or do the Americans line up translators for them? Uh, these have not been translated. And uh, basically, many American publishers, there are two ways that, that they can read material. Either the editors themselves uh, might read French or German or another language. Uh, maybe someone in-house has something. Uh, and, and sometimes they go by various prizes that a book has won in the country. And if lacking that, then they will send it out. They have readers, uh, people who know a certain language who can read a book and then write a report on it. Uh, but some people still really prefer to not use readers, and what they would like is to have publishers uh, send in something that's been translated, at least sample translation, and then a uh, description of the book in mm-hmm. English. So much, much in the same way that that you get a proposal. Now, uh, those from those publishers, the big houses from Milan, uh, Feltrinelli, uh, you know, Mandador, they. They Mondadori, they know how to do this, uh, and often they work with scouts. And so this is the first time that these small publishers we're talking, and this is specifically this this whole um, uh, uh, enterprise is to is to is specifically aimed at smaller and mid-sized publishers. So um, they have never had this kind of dialogue before with with anyone. Um, so it was kind of a really nice way to get the dialogue starting. 
and they're going to start they're going to do this they started in sicily and they're going to do it throughout three other uh southern italian regions where um combined with the local travel uh bureau like the maybe the Calabrian Calabrese Travel Bureau, along with the um, the region um, uh, municipality and uh, other sources, they'll bring writers and you know, authors in and hold literary festivals like this. So, are these done with interpreters, or does basically everyone in publishing speak English, or are the publishers who go out there from America people who speak Italian? No, uh, I was the only one in the delegation who spoke Italian, but uh, and and I wasn't even an acquiring editor. I'm just there to observe and witness, right? Um, and come back and report. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, no, there was an interpreter who who uh, um, who who was able to translate for for uh for for the two parties hmm. um and uh elena phillips who heads the chicago office the ta- has the task force of publishing the chicago office did a wonderful job translating and interpreting for for both and uh really really good but but at times for some of the more formal meetings they hired uh, there was a there's a higher translator there Wow, that that sounds like really quite a process. What what got the American publishers on board with that? And you said it's mostly small presses, right? Yeah, yeah. So this must have been a significant outlay for them to all send people overseas and arrange for translation and so forth. Like that's that's a big investment. It is, and the um, the Italian uh, trade agency, uh, who I, I think also with some money from the European Union and other uh, other organizations. Uh, really believed in trying to that this would help uh southern publishers meaning that it would allow them to to uh either um sell their books to american audiences or will help them will also give them money to help in the marketing of books uh which is which is pretty interesting and also uh i think with this, with this organization, I, I don't know. I mean, I think for American publishers, it was kind of interesting too, because you know they're they're getting it. You know, who knows what's out there? Who knows right. who's out there? Who's writing some good stuff? And I should also mention that the best known uh, uh, publisher. Uh, well, actually, I should say, step back. One of the uh, best-selling Italy's best-selling. Uh, novelist right now, probably one of the best known uh, writers from Italy is Andrea Camilleri, who writes mm-hmm. the Inspector Montalbano series. His publisher is based in Sicily, Salerio uh, Pub- uh, Editore, uh, and rather than, and he, I think from what I understand, he was insistent that he's Sicilian, he's going to be published by a Sicilian publisher. And so, so that really put Sicily on the map as far as book publishing goes. Since Camilleri went with his Sicilian publisher, um, how, how has the landscape changed? When, when was that? Probably 10, 15 years ago. And it doesn't seem like the landscape has changed all that much. I think the, that's become the one big publisher and mm-hmm. everyone else has remained small. And I think a lot of it is the focus from the smaller publishers to still publish books locally, meaning books on uh, Sicilian history or mm-hmm. Sicilian artifacts or the history of Sicilian uh, uh, sculpting or uh, carving, wood carving. And one of the books that they promoted was that, but just to show, and they tried to show how this was indicative of, of a larger school of, of, of carpentry or wood carving. So um, that hasn't really spread as far as I could tell as much. What was interesting was that... Um, 
This was all part of a larger festival, which was the film festival, mm-hmm. and uh, called the Shaka Film Fest, which was uh, which is a local film festival uh, combined with a literary festival, Letterando, um, and they combined to brought to bring authors and filmmakers to Shaka, which is a um, coastal city in southwestern uh, Sicily, uh, just northwest of Agrigento, which which is one of the bigger cities and uh, one of the first in, was founded by both cities were founded by Greeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, later, the, the, the remnants of now you still have some Greek ruins, some Byzantine ruins and medieval is the biggest one. So this is a coastal town, which uh, in the last decade, Shaka is, that is, is been really uh, just been kind of growing because of tourism. So it's become, it has a little more money. Uh, they've got nice beaches. It's right on the coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the architecture has remained intact. So it's become interesting for a lot of people to see you know, old buildings and to explore them. And this was held at a convent. Oh, it was a, um, a convent that had been converted to a, uh, uh, um, this had been modernized to house a three uh, theater um, movie center huh. and you walk into this it's right next to the church uh, and you walk into this large though unassuming oak door I'm assuming it's oak maybe it's cypress I don't remember but I think it's oak and it just is a door off the piazza right next to the church and then you walk in and then it's just huge courtyard of, of uh, right as soon as you walk in, there's booksellers who are selling their books, hmm. uh, who are being indis- interviewed by local uh, uh, news organizations. Um, then you meander a little bit further. There's trees in this courtyard. There's walls that kind of wind you around to an even larger courtyard. And this is where the films were, were, were shown. Um, and about I counted about 400 seats were hmm. there. I mean, that's quite a big wow. piazza. And, I, and it kind of brought to mind like uh, many Italian cities where uh, back in the 19th century, even early 20th century, there'd be roving uh, troops of actors and comedians and singers and people who would cry out the news. They would travel from town to town and cry out the news of the region in a, a folkloric way. And here they're now, you know, now these authors are gathering these movies are and what was interesting was that for the movies they were short movies uh eight to ten minutes long i think uh and this is part of a um a um uh uh, something in sicily um uh to celebrate sicilian authors and they selected four authors from this area from western sicily and they commissioned four people for filmmakers, young filmmakers, to come up with an eight or fifteen minute piece using the words from the text, but oh. also reflecting on the land. So I was, I was wondering what the link was between um, film and fiction. Exactly, and it was this one night, and I, I there's about five hundred people there. It was a really big event. Uh, the mayor was there. Uh, the regional, I, th- I believe, the regional president of Sicily was there. Um, and again, this is another event. Uh, that was started by a, a journalist for, again, the uh, Corriere della Sera, uh, Felice Cavallaro. He's really respected, and he came up with this program, The Road of Writers. So the writers that uh, they uh, focused on, uh, and later we, we took travels to these towns, wherever they were, was... Uh, 
um, uh, Giuseppe Tomasi de Lampedusa, who's best known for his one and only novel, The Leopard, which is this epic uh, history, uh, this epic novel of um, an aristocratic Sicilian family. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, uh, the name of the uh, movie was La Squardo del Principe, La Danafugata del Gatto Pardo. And it's like the view of the prince. He was a prince, uh, the character in the book. And uh, the view of Danafugata, which is the, uh, the, the house, the, the palace where he lived, surrounded by all the poorer folk. But this is uh, the fictitious name he gave the house where he grew up. Uh, another one is, uh, well, they also did Andrea Camilleri, mm-hmm. um, and uh, where he is from um, uh, Porto Empedocle, which is a port town just north of or uh, west of Agrigento, where his books are all uh, set. Uh, he changed the name to uh, Vigata and we we took a little tour so we got to see where where he grew up where his character inspector Montalbano lives right on the water and a house where where he would the uh, the character would go to eat the port where he would walk around and oh. basically the joke was cuz I, I i wanted to see this uh, and and i actually asked the uh, the head of the program to see if we could take a detour through this one street and so they did and of course the uh, there was supposed to be a statue in the center of town but uh, the whole street was going under reconstruction the statue was moved and everyone said ah the new Mark was coming. They cleared everything <laughs> out. So anyway, it was a, it was actually really a lot of fun. That was that was a blast to see that. And then we traveled uh, uh, further inland uh, to uh, to see Luigi Pirandello. Now he's a short story writer, poet, novelist. I believe he was the first uh, winner of the Nobel Prize or the winner of the first Nobel Prize in literature in 1934. I just have to check that. He's from uh, Kaos. Chaos, Chaos, a town, mm-hmm. a Greek town. Um, uh, it's like actually a village on the outskirts of Agrigento, and 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 there he wrote uh, he um, wrote about the uh, salt mines. A lot of Italians worked in salt mines there, so you could still see the ruins of the salt mines. And again, his is the um, uh, the the uh, the text for this was based on his 1926 novel One No One and One Hundred Thousand. And finally, uh, Leonardo Shasha, who's a novelist, essayist, and playwright, who's best known for the uh, The Day of the Owl, a novel, and his nonfiction account of the Moro Fair about Prime Minister Aldo Moro, who was kidnapped in 1978, held for ransom. Um, the name of the uh, film is uh, Racomuto Isolo Nel Isola, Island Within an Island. Um, and uh, again, it was a young director, Dario Guarnieri, uh, he's about 28 years old, um, who came up with his movie. So that was basically, that was basically the, our tour of, um, of Italy. Now, there were a couple of books that, uh, that, that, that seemed to strike interest in, in uh, some of the American publishers. I think one of the more interesting books that people saw was a book called The Eruption of Etna and the Works of Orazio Silvestri, who was a 19th century uh, geologist from Florence who also was an illustrator. Hmm. And uh, he drew these really wonderful uh, illustrations, paintings of Mount Etna when it was uh, erupting. So that was that was interesting. And then there was a book called uh, La Notte in Cupessaua, Incontro Filippo Bentivegna, uh, a uh, a night um, with Pessao, the uh, uh, Portuguese artist, uh, 
meeting Filippo Bentigneno, who is uh, just an unknown person in this town. It's imaginary conversation between the sculptor, this local sculptor, and uh, this great artist. And that was kind of interesting. And then um, I'm just trying to think that might, that might have been, there's, I've got a few more books, but those are, those are the ones that I have right here at the tip of my tongue. Well, I don't want to give anything away also because you've written this up. So um, when is your piece on this going to appear in PW? Monday. 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 Yes. Right. So very soon. Well, we'll definitely uh, keep an eye out for that. Great. Well, thank wow. you so much, Mark. Well, that thank was you a... so much for having me, Rose. <laughs> it's always lovely to have you on the show. <laughs> my no, jet but... lag. <laughs> with my jet lag. I was, uh... <laughs> no, that, that, that's, that's really great stuff. I'm really glad you were okay. willing to great. recap it for us. Great. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Patrick Swenson, author of The Ultra Thin Man, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Joyce Carol Oates, editor of Prison Noir, an anthology of crime stories written by people behind bars. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and on iTunes. Available for you to listen absolutely Absolutely free. Check this site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 